Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And he says, no one comes to the Father but by me. That sounds like an exclusive statement, doesn't it? But it is actually a very inclusive statement. Because in the very context of that statement, the book of John says that as Jesus Christ is lifted up from the earth, he will draw all to him. And furthermore, in John chapter 6 and verse 37, Jesus says, Whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Very inclusive. And I know there's someone here this morning who needs that promise. John 6, 37. He that comes to me, she that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. You know, if you have that one promise, you have all you need for entrance into the kingdom of God. Let's pray this morning. Father in heaven, we want to thank you this morning for Jesus Christ, for the word that you've given us, for the promise of your Holy Spirit to teach us, to convict us, to guide us into all truth. We want to thank you for this providential meeting, this time together with you in your word. We ask that you will open our hearts, our minds, that you will communicate to us your thoughts concerning us, your message of truth, that in this devotional time this morning, our hearts will be encouraged and uplifted and directed to Jesus, that as we go from this place, we can direct others to Jesus, that we can shine as stars, as light bearers for you in this world of darkness. In our marketplace, in our place of ministry, Father, that your heart can be transferred to others through us. Do that for us this morning, we pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, and let everyone say, Amen. Amen. Let's open our Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. And I want us to look this morning in Daniel chapter 12 at verse 3. Daniel 12 and verse 3 is the final verse of a long series of visions that Daniel has been given. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 11 are a series of what we call repeat and enlarge visions, each one building upon the previous and enlarging and expanding, giving us more information down through the prophetic picture of time. In Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3, we have the very last verse of this series of visions. I know we think that the series ends in Daniel 11, but it actually ends in Daniel 12. Daniel 11 and verse 44 or 45 is not the end of the context, the subject matter of the chapter. It actually continues on in Daniel 12. You could, you could actually divide the chapter in Daniel 12 and verse 4 rather than in Daniel 12 and verse 1 because verses 1, 2, and 3 of Daniel 12 belong to the vision. Gabriel is speaking to Daniel. Gabriel has been instructing Daniel from the beginning. If you go all the way back to, to 11 and verse 1, I also... In the first year of Darius the Mede, even I stood to confirm and strengthen him. And now, verse 2, I will show you the truth. Verse 2 is Gabriel talking to Daniel. And he's communicating this truth to Daniel. And he continues to communicate to him all the way through to verse 3 of Daniel 12. 
So this verse is the final verse of the series of visions. The final message that Gabriel wants to communicate to Daniel. Daniel has been in contact, connected with God since he was a teenager. Since he was 15 or 16 years old and was sent to Babylon on a mission from God. An evangelistic trip or journey that took him his whole life. Not six weeks or two weeks or ten days, but his whole life. And at the end of this evangelistic journey, Daniel has been given a final vision of the king of the north and the king of the south and the king of the north and the king of the south. A very difficult, challenging, and somewhat confusing vision for many of us to understand. But at the end of this vision, the very final verse, the very final message that is communicated to Daniel by Gabriel from heaven is this. Daniel 12, verse 3, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. And they that turn many to, what? Righteousness as the stars forever and ever. You know, people want to be stars. You know, people want to be movie stars and they want to be rock stars. People want to have a star in the sidewalk in a place called Hollywood. So I guess people can walk over those stars with their feet and get them all dirty. I don't know why people want stars in cement. But one of the reasons that we can understand this desire for stardom is because Daniel 12 verse 3 tells us that that is our destiny as human beings. We are destined to be stars that shine for ever and ever. That's our destiny. But notice the verse. The verse is actually twofold. The first half of it is talking about those who are wise. Those who are wise. Those who are wise are going to shine as the brightness of the firmament. They that turn... In other words, here's a repeat and enlargement of the previous thought. Those that are wise are those who are going to turn many to... What's the word again? Righteousness. Now what's really powerful about this verse, this final verse of all the visions of Daniel, is the understanding that we get when we seek to define the word righteousness. Righteousness. Because that word is defined powerfully, not only in Romans chapter 1, but back in the book of Jeremiah chapter 23. That word is defined powerfully in verse 6. Jeremiah 23 and verse 6 it says, prophesying of our time, and not only of Jeremiah's, in his days Judah shall be saved, Israel shall dwell safely, and this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our, anyone know? Righteousness. Who is this talking about? Jesus. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us in verse 30 that Jesus Christ is our justification, He's our sanctification, He's our redemption. He's everything. In the Desire of Ages, page 300, we're told that He is our title and our fitness for heaven. He's our righteousness. He's our title and fitness for heaven. Context of that statement, many are striving to earn salvation, but Jesus is both our title and fitness. He's our righteousness. So if you look at this in the context of Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3, you could actually exchange for the word righteousness, you could actually exchange the word Jesus. Let's read the verse with that word in there. Daniel 12 verse 3, And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to Jesus. 
they that turn many to Jesus as the stars forever and ever. And that's really why we're here. We're here to learn how we can turn people to Jesus. How can we turn people to Jesus? That's why we're here. That's what ASI is all about. Sharing Christ in the marketplace. Turning people to Jesus. And you know, the opportunities abound and sometimes we're not so aware of them. We stumble at times over principles and issues and and distractions that surround us in our isms like Adventism. And we need to perhaps learn from the history of God's people how we can be prepared to turn many to Jesus. Let's look at it in the context of this prophecy, shall we? I believe this prophecy had a fulfillment in the days of Christ. Now, of course, we believe this is end-time prophecy, and it is. But first and foremost, the prophecies of Daniel are directing us, even the 70 weeks of the 2300 days, are directing us to Jesus' first advent, to his first coming. This prophecy, therefore, has application there, first and foremost. Daniel 12, verse 3, they that be wise. Were there wise people when Jesus was born on this earth? Were there wise people? Let's look at that in Matthew chapter 2. I think you know where we're going with this. Matthew chapter 2 talks about some people. We believe there were three of them because there were three gifts that they brought with them. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came what kind of men? Wise men. And where were they coming from? What made them wise? They were wise because they were looking for who? Jesus. Don't don't stop with this idea that they were wise because they were studying the prophecies. Indeed, they were studying the prophecies. But the reason why they were studying the prophecies was because they were looking for the Messiah. They were looking for Jesus. It's one thing to study prophecy, and it's another thing to study prophecy to look for Jesus. They were wise because they were looking for Jesus. Sometimes we study prophecy and we stop when we understand prophecy. We stop before we find Jesus. Let's look at an example of that. It says that these wise men came to Jerusalem, to the church. There are wise people. There are people that are looking for Jesus and they're coming to our church. They're coming to the church and they're looking for Jesus. They're looking for Jesus saying, verse 2, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. You know, there are a lot of people out there that are seeing the stars that are shining, people that are leading them to Jesus. They're watching perhaps 3ABN or getting tracts or literature, and they show up at your church. Maybe they might come on a Sunday to begin with, And then they realize, no, they need to be there on Saturday. Who knows? But they show up at your church, and as they come to your church, they've been listening, they've been reading. As they come to your church, guess what they're looking for? Jesus. That's who they're looking for. A lot of these people understand. They've been reading, they've been studying, they understand the prophecies, just like the men from the East. But they're looking for Jesus. I wonder if they'll find him. Will they find Jesus? They've seen his star in the east, it says here, and they've come to what? Worship him. 
So it says in verse 3, when Herod and the king had heard these things, he was what? What was the word there? Troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Can you imagine being troubled by the good news of Jesus? Can you imagine being troubled when people come to your church looking for Jesus? These men had come looking for Jesus, and it troubled Herod, and it troubled all of Jerusalem. And it says that, verse 4, when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes and the people together, he demanded of them when Christ should be born. Here we see the uniting, in a sense, of church and state. We see the enforcement, the demanding of truth to come forth. Verse 5 says, And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by what? The prophet. Did they know the prophecies? Yes, they knew the prophecies. Do we know the prophecies? Yes, we know the prophecies. People are looking for Jesus, and we, when they come to us, are giving them prophecy. Verse 6, Thou, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, art not least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come forth a governor that shall rule thy people Israel. Then Herod, when he had privately called the wise men, inquired of them diligently at what time the star appeared. Now I like this because this not only tells us that Herod is interested in prophecy, but Herod is interested in time prophecy. He's interested in time prophecy. And you know, time prophecy as Seventh-day Adventist, time prophecy is in our blood. You know that. We're still, we're still seeking to reapply the time prophecies and put them in the future somewhere. You know, we want to do something with those time prophecies. There's got to be some way to put them maybe in a literal format of some kind up there in the future. We don't want to put any dates there because we're afraid that if we put dates, you know, we're really going to be out of harmony with the counsel we've been given. But we're just going to throw them out there. You know, when the Sunday law passes, then it's going to be 1,335 literal days until time prophecy. Herod was really interested. What time did the star appear? He's searching the scriptures. But notice this. Notice this. And he sent them, verse 8, to Bethlehem. And he said... Go and search diligently for the young child. Who are they talking about? Jesus. Go and search diligently for Jesus. And when you have found him, bring me word again that I may come and worship him also. You know what that's called? That's called secondhand religion. That's what happens when you spend all of your time watching 3ABN. And no time in the word of God in personal devotion with Jesus Christ. You, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Preacher, Mr. Pastor, you go find Jesus. You go study and find Jesus. And when, whatever you find, whatever, whatever insight, come and share that with me. Come and tell me about that. And you know, the angels forbade the wise men to do that. And God is forbidding us today. The message that we must communicate to all is that you must find Jesus for yourself. Individually, personally, you must find Jesus. And so we find these men that are wise going one step further than Herod and the scribes and Pharisees. They continue on their journey to find Jesus. They continue on their journey to find Jesus. They're not satisfied with the prophecies. They're not satisfied with time prophecy. They want 
to find the one that is prophesied of. Amen? They want to find Jesus. And that's why they're wise. And it says in verse 9, And when they had heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And then let's just back up a little bit here, verse 10. And when they saw the star, they what? Rejoiced with exceeding joy. We are to be those stars, those lights, if you will. We are to bring light to the people of this world so that they can rejoice with exceeding joy and they can find the Savior, Jesus. Our job is to lead people to Jesus. To lead people to Jesus. And it says, when they were, verse 11, come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and they fell down and they worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And verse 12, being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed unto their own country another way. And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and flee into Egypt, and be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Is God still guiding his people today? Those who are wise have nothing to fear for the plans and the plots of others. Those who are wise have one job only, and that is to lead people to Jesus. Let me share with you this morning a statement that has made, meant a lot to me. I recently read this book. It's called The Return of the Latter Rain. This is a book that should be in the home of every Seventh-day Adventist. And I believe they're available here in the exhibit area. If you go to the Glad Tidings booth, I believe you can find one of these books. Every Seventh-day Adventist should have a copy of this book and read it. Return of the Latter Rain. It is the history of this church from 1844 to 1891. There's a second edition coming out that picks up from there. I'm going to share with you a statement that was written by a man named James White. You ever heard of him? You know, James White was actually descendant, is actually a descendant from the early pilgrims that came across the ocean there and landed on Plymouth Rock. He was a descendant of the firstborn child there in among those pilgrims. And I think that is profoundly interesting because when you look in Revelation chapter 12, you're looking at the prophecy, you know, of the woman with the wings of an eagle flying over the sea into her place. And of course, that is a picture of God's remnant people coming to this earth, to the United States. And among those people was one of the founders of this church, James White. Prophetic. He says here, just before his death in 1881, with some there is an unutterable yearning of soul for Christ. And the writer is one of this class. With some of us, it has been business, work, care, giving Christ but little room in mind and in the affections. With others, it has been nearly all theory, dwelling upon the law, the prophets, the nature and destiny of man, the messages while destitute to an alarming degree of an indwelling Christ. Our preachers need more encouragement. They should preach Christ more. They should know more of him upon whom our hopes of success here and heaven hereafter depend. Just before he died, this was the burden that James White, one of our Adventist pioneers, carried upon his heart. 
the burden that our preachers needed more of Christ. They needed more of an indwelling Christ, that we needed to focus more on Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? And that's what we want to do in our series this morning. I'm going to be sharing with you not only this morning, but tomorrow morning. Then my wife is going to take over from there, and she's going to be sharing with you in our last devotional meeting on Sabbath morning. And the theme, the focus of the two meetings that I have is based on a statement in the Desire of Ages. This statement is found on page 439 and 440, and this is how it reads, not word for word. Desire of Ages 439 and 440. When we see Jesus scorned, slighted, derided, driven from city to city until his mission was accomplished, when we see him in Gethsemane, sweating great drops of blood and on the cross dying in agony. When we see this, self will no longer clamor to be recognized. We will be ashamed of our lethargy and our self-seeking and we will be willing to be anything or nothing so we may do heart service for the Master. Anything or nothing. This morning we want to focus on being anything for Jesus. We want to focus on that because it is our lethargy that keeps us from being anything for Jesus. Tomorrow we'll focus on being nothing. 26 years ago when God first converted my heart, He called me into ministry. It wasn't an appealing call for me because of all the things that I ever thought I might do with my life, public speaking was the furthest from them. I had no problem with my English classes. My mother was an English teacher, and so I got A's without even trying, except when it came to speech. That was the one quarter, the one class that I had the most difficulty with because in order for me to get an A, I would have to speak publicly before the whole class, and I was scared to death. And you can ask anyone who ever heard me preach in my early years, I was terrible. They say I've improved a little bit. But the last thing that I wanted to do was speak in public. I had the same excuses that Moses had, brought them all forth one after another. Who am I? What's my background? What, what kind of credentials do I have to get up front and share anything with anyone? But God wiped all of those away, as he did with Moses, as he will do with each one of us. Say not, I'm a child, he said to Jeremiah. You will go wherever I send you and whatever I command you, you will speak. Some of us are children in age and others are children in experience, biblical experience. But God says, I'm going to wipe all that away because I have a message and I need people to present it. Amen? As I grew, 26 years later, I've come to the place where it's not so much willing to be anything, but at times willing to be nothing. There's a balance between the two, being anything or nothing. John the Baptist was willing to be anything for Jesus. He was called a wild fanatic out there in the wilderness, preaching and, and eating honey and locusts. Can you imagine dipping those little insects in, in honey and chomping them down? I can't either. In fact, those locusts really were carob pods from the carob tree, which grows profusely in the Middle Eastern countries. Carob was used to make bread. They even call it St. John's bread to this day. And 
also for fodder for animals. It was a poor man's food, and it was thought that if you were so poor that you had to eat carob pods or carob bread, that you needed to repent because God wasn't blessing you. And that's why John ate it, because he had a message of repentance. There he was out in the wilderness eating his carob, foregoing all his chocolate, even the dark chocolate that's supposed to be good for you, I don't think anything with caffeine is good for you. That's an aside. And preaching that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was about to be manifest among them. People thought he was crazy. He was a fanatic. But he was willing to be anything. Amen? And then, later on in his life, he's willing, he was willing to be nothing so that Jesus Christ could increase. That's where we are today as a church. We are in a place where Jesus needs to increase and we need to decrease. And that's the message we find right here in prophecy. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it, how the wise men have paved the way for us. Let's open our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 1. The wise men have paved the way for us in a sense because they have shown us the hazards, the dangers of focusing on prophecy without looking for Jesus. Isn't that what happened with Herod in Jerusalem? They were interested in prophecy. They knew prophecy. They could answer all of the questions that the prophets posed, but they weren't willing to diligently search for Jesus. You know, a lot of people struggle with the book of Revelation because they understand that it's a book of prophecy. They understand that it's talking about prophecy, and some of those prophecies are pretty challenging, like, for example, the seven trumpets. But... We do not always diligently search and find Jesus in the prophecies. So I believe that Daniel chapter 12 verse 3 is telling us, counseling us, directing us, that as we get to the end of time, we are going to be in danger of repeating the history of the early Jewish church, and that is being satisfied with prophecy and not diligently searching for Jesus. In fact, we're counseled in Testimonies to Ministers, page 114, that when we have a better understanding of the books of Daniel and Revelation, we will be impressed with the characters that all must develop. That we will see more of Jesus in these books. I believe that's the case. In fact, I believe that the book of Revelation is a revelation of Jesus Christ. What do you think of that? Well, it's the title, and I know a lot of people will say, well, that means it's from Jesus. You know, God sent it, and it's from Jesus, but I believe it's also of Jesus. I believe the theme of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ, and I believe also that this book could be called the fifth gospel of the Bible. You know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four gospels. Why? Because they talk about Jesus. Well, so does the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation points us to Jesus. Let me give you an example. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. What do you think of that? Who is that talking about? Is that the beast? Is that the dragon? No, that's talking about Jesus. And that is the first message of the book of Revelation. The first message of the book of Revelation is the message of salvation in Jesus that has been accomplished by Jesus. The first thing that God wants us to know when we open up this book is that Jesus Christ loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We as a church have no business directing people to Revelation chapter 13 if we haven't directed them to Revelation chapter 1. 
We have no business putting Revelation 13 in front of Revelation chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, or 12. In fact, we have no business even quoting Revelation chapter 12 and 17. Here are they to keep the commandments of God until we thoroughly share Revelation chapters 1 through 11. And you know, Revelation chapters 1 through 11 never mention a people who keep the commandments of God. Did you know that? Search high and low. You will not find in the first half of the book of Revelation any mention of a people who keep God's commandments. Do you know why that is? Because the first half of the book of Revelation is dedicated to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only way people will ever keep the commandments of God is if they are saturated, are established in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you keep my commandments, you love me. And we love him, 1 John 4, 19 says, because he first loved us. So we must find Jesus before we get to Revelation chapter 12. It's vital. It's, it's, it's paramount that we find Jesus first. We don't have to look far. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12. John says, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and I turned... And I saw seven golden candlesticks. And verse 13 says, In the midst of the candlesticks, I saw one like unto who? Who's that? Jesus. You see, it's not only the first message, it's also the first vision. The first vision of the book of Revelation is the vision, not of the dragon, not of the beast, but of Jesus. The first thing that God shows John is Christ. The first thing he sees is Jesus. The first message he hears is the message of Jesus' love and forgiveness. Because God knows that if we are established in the gospel of Jesus, and if we have our eyes fixed upon Jesus, we'll be ready for the rest of the book of Revelation. Are you with me? Everything else that comes will be insignificant in comparison to this. But if we miss Jesus and the gospel, the rest of the book of Revelation will scare us. You know, my wife was raised a Seventh-day Adventist. I wasn't. Loma Linda, California is where she hails from. And she has told me that her first nightmares are directly connected to her first Revelation seminar. Some of you know why. All those beasts and images portrayed there, focused upon, night after night, meeting after meeting, and very little of Jesus. But that's not the way the book of Revelation is written. If you're going to do a seminar on the book of Revelation, you've got to start with chapter 1. And then you've got to go to chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2 and 3 picks up this message that we call the everlasting gospel. Revelation chapter 2 begins with the seven churches. These seven churches have some problems, but each one of them is encouraged to do one thing, overcome. To him that overcomes, to him that overcomes, to him that overcomes, which makes it very evident that they're not. Are you with me? In fact, when you look at the vision of Jesus Christ, he's standing among the churches, and you kind of wonder, after you read the message to the churches, why? Because these churches have some major problems. Why would Jesus even want to be associated with them? Well, that's where the gospel comes in. Because Jesus Christ wants to assure us before he even tells us about these messages that he's with us, that he's among us, that he is standing with us. We may forsake him, but he doesn't forsake us. We may turn from him, but he doesn't turn from us. 
There are two churches that have nothing against them, no rebuke. That is Philadelphia and Smyrna. But Jesus does not picture himself as standing among two of the candlesticks while the other five are located over on the, on, the, on the other side of the room, saying to the other churches, you know, when you get your act together, you can come and join us. No, Jesus stands among all seven. He gives us the assurance that he is with us in spite of us, even though the Laodicean church makes him want to throw up. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So what we see here is an unconditional love, an assurance of Christ's love for us in spite of ourselves, and we need it, don't we? It is vital. Then, as you move into Revelation chapter 4, you see this vision of this throne that is set in heaven. There's a rainbow over the throne which reminds us of God's promises. And then it says, continuing further in Revelation chapter 5, that there is a book in the right hand of him that sits on the throne. And this book, this scroll, is written on the inside and on the outside. And it's sealed up with seven seals. And John says, as he hears... A strong angel proclaimed with a loud voice who is worthy to open the, the, the book and loose the seals. He says in verse 3 that there is no man in heaven, no man in earth, and no man under the earth that is able to open the book, neither to look upon it. And what does John begin to do after he sees that no one is able to open this book? He begins to weep. He begins to weep. This book contains the history of the world. Every event, every nation, every person is written in the book. And the summary of that history is, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And John, realizing this, begins to weep because there's no one in heaven, not Enoch, not Elijah, who were so righteous, who were walking so closely with God that God translated them without seeing death. No one in earth, not the Pope, not the President, no matter how powerful or holy they claim to be, and no one under the earth. That would include those who have died in Christ, like Daniel, who was so blameless that he stood before his enemies without fault. No one is able to open this book or to look upon it. And the reason for that is because we cannot save ourselves. There's not... a a point, a truth that needs to be dwelt upon more earnestly, repeated more frequently, or established more firmly in the minds of all as the impossibility of man, fallen man, meriting anything by his own best good works. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone. This is the essence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to overcome, but we can't. No man in heaven, no man in earth, no man under the earth can prevail. No one can open the book. No one can alter our destiny with death. We are doomed. And John begins to weep when he realizes that fact. And as he was weeping, one of the elders, verse 5, said unto him, here it is, seven letters comprising two words that bring us the rest of the story, weep not. There's the gospel. Weep not. Weep not. Behold the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, even though that is not a command, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, it ought to be. Because here is found the secret of success in the Christian experience. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He has, what's the next word? Anyone? Prevailed. Anyone know what that word means? In the original Greek, that's the same word that is 
given to each one of the churches. It's the same word, overcome. To him that overcomes, to him that overcomes, to him that overcomes. What if you can't overcome? Well, weep not, weep not. If you have not been able to overcome, if your sins have been overwhelming, if you feel the load and the weight of guilt upon your shoulders, if you've tried and tried and tried until you're about ready to just give up, weep not, weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. He has prevailed. He is able. Yes, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Yes, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God. The what? The gift of God. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He has prevailed. He has overcome. He has overcome. That's the word. He has overcome. See, the book of Revelation is giving us an outline of the plan of salvation. Jesus Christ loves us. Step number one, God's love for man. Jesus Christ, and he has washed us from our sins in his blood. He's taken care of the sin problem. He has died for every sin that has ever been committed. Not one sin has been left off for which Jesus has not paid a ransom. Step number two, you need to overcome. Don't be satisfied with anything less than overcoming sin. Because sin will destroy you. Sin will separate you from God. Sin will overwhelm you. Sin is what Jesus came to save us from. Don't give up. Because if the mind no longer believes that you can overcome, the battle is lost. And that's where Satan is, is fighting the battle, right here. You may think that it's worthless, that's useless. But that's because you're looking at yourself. Behold the Lamb of God. He has prevailed. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your focus on Jesus. He's prevailed. He has overcome. And then you have the white horse rider. Revelation chapter 6 and verse 1. As soon as this message comes to John that the Lamb has prevailed, the Lamb begins to open the seals of this book, this scroll that is in the right hand of him that sits on the throne, this title deed to the earth, if you will. And as he begins to peel back the seals, he begins to alter our destiny with death. He begins to change the history of the world. That's what Jesus Christ has done. He has altered our history. Each one of us has a destiny in Christ. Each one of us has a new experience waiting for us in Jesus Christ. Every person on planet earth is a new creature in Christ. There is a destiny waiting to be had in Jesus for everyone. And that is the message that we have to proclaim to the world. The good news of the gospel is you have a future and a hope. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you've done, you have a future and a hope in Jesus Christ. Waiting there for you to be claimed, to be appreciated, to be, to be taken in, accepted. A gift, purchased, wrapped with a bow. Your name is on it. Amen? Your name is on it. It's there. And the white horse, it says, as the four beasts, one of the four beasts says, come and see. I saw and behold a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth doing what? Conquering and to conquer. Anyone know what that word means? To overcome. Same word. Same word, to overcome. You need to overcome. You don't seem to be able to do it. But Jesus has overcome. And now, white horse, white horse rider. You know who the white horse rider is? Jesus. 
Revelation 19 tells us that. Do you know who the white horse is? Us. Zechariah chapter 10 tells us that. We are his goodly horse in the battle. Zechariah 10, verse 3. If you don't find it in verse 3, read the whole chapter. Then read the whole book. You'll find it in there. Zechariah. We are his goodly horse in the battle. So what this, this first horse here is telling us, what the imagery of this horse is telling us is that when we let Jesus take the reins, when we connect with Jesus, when he becomes our rider, we go forth conquering and to conquer. We can't conquer. It's impossible. We can't do it. We can't overcome. But Jesus has overcome. And when we connect with Jesus, guess what? We go forth conquering and to conquer. Praise God. Praise God. That is the essence of the message of the book of Revelation. And as we take in this message, as we focus on Christ, as we lift Him up, as we see Him, step by step and point by point in the book of Revelation, especially the first half, we're going to find ourselves fulfilling the description of God's people in Revelation chapters 12 through 15. You know there are seven descriptions of God's people in Revelation chapters 12 through 17. Excuse me, 12 through 15. We focus on two of them. Revelation 12, 17, those that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 14, 12, those that keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. But there are five other descriptions of God's people there. One of them that I want you to think about as we close our meeting this morning is this. Revelation 12, verse 11. And they, God's people who are being accused day and night in the context, Revelation 12, verse 10, by the accuser of our brethren, who accuses God, them before God day and night. They, God's people, overcome him. There's that key word again. Same word as prevailed. They overcome him, the accuser, by what? By the blood of their lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they love not their lives unto the death. They're willing to be anything or nothing. Anything or nothing for Jesus. How did they get that experience? How did they come to the place where they overcame? Well, first of all, they saw Jesus' love, Revelation 1, verse 5. Then they put their focus on Jesus, Revelation 1, verses 12 and 13. They kept their eyes on Jesus. They didn't look at other people. They didn't look around them at the faults and imperfections of others or themselves or the things of the world. They kept their focus on Jesus. Then they received the message, you need to overcome, you need to overcome. They never gave up believing that they could overcome. They never allowed the theology of cheap grace to tell them that they could not overcome. Even though at times they were overwhelmed with their own imperfections and faults. Like Sarah and Abraham, at times they may have laughed at the idea that they could have this child, Jesus, born in them. This child of promise. They kept their faith in the promises of God's words. And then they realized that Jesus had overcome. And that as they united with him, they too would go forth and overcome. And they gained through this the experience of overcoming by the blood of the Lamb. And then they had this word of their testimony, sharing with others the beautiful truth of Christ and his righteousness. I want to close this morning with this statement from This Day with God. August 5th, that's today's date. August 5th, this was written by Ellen White to my dear brethren. It was written in 1903, about 107 years ago. But I believe it is the message that God wants to communicate to us this morning. So as I read this this morning in preparation for these meetings, I thought, I must share this with the brethren. 
because I'm not the brethren, I'm a brother. But this is to the brethren. August 5th, 1903. Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord with defiled garments represents those whose religious life has been faulty, who have been overcome by Satan's temptations and are unworthy of God's favor. Today, human beings stand before God with defiled garments. All their righteousness is as filthy rags, Isaiah 64, 6. Satan uses against them his masterly accusing power, pointing to their imperfections as evidence of their weakness. Do you feel him breathing down your neck? He points scornfully at the mistakes of those who claim to be doing God's service. They have been deceived by him, and he begs for permission to destroy them. Do you at times feel like giving up, that life is worthless, that you might as well just quit, perhaps that you even want to die? That all comes from Satan. But they trust in Christ, and Christ will not forsake them. He came to this world to take away their sins and to impute to them His righteousness. He declares that through faith in His name, they will receive forgiveness and perfect Christian characters, Christ-like characters. They have confessed their sins to Him. They've asked for pardon. And Christ declares that because they look to and believe on Him, He will give them power to become the sons of God. Amen. Their characters are defective. But because they have not trusted in their own merits and excuse their sins because they have not trusted in their own merits and have not excused their sins because they have asked for forgiveness through the merits of Christ, the Lord receives them and rebukes Satan. Praise God. Because they have humbled themselves confessing their sins, he refuses to listen to the enemy's accusations. He has abundantly pardoned the penitent ones and he will carry forward his work in them, his work of redeeming love if they will continue to believe in him and to trust Him. Those who by divine grace have gained the mastery over their faults are to teach others how to overcome. Do you see that? It's outlined there in the book of Revelation. How to overcome, step by step. Pointing them to the source of all strength. To every converted soul is given the privilege of helping those around Him who do not rejoice in the light in which He is standing they also may know the joy that has come to him. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. John 1.12 They may take their place in the world as God's light bearers. Couldn't resist that one. As God's light bearers. They that turn many to Jesus will shine as the stars forever and ever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're thankful this morning that you've given us a picture of Jesus, a picture that is found not only in the Gospels that we know to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but right here in the book of Revelation, the fifth Gospel of the Bible, and there in the book of Daniel, again, the final message, the final verse of those, that series of visions directing us to direct others to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the hope that we have in Christ. Thank you that we do not need to believe that we have been defeated because we have a Savior. Thank you that we can accept this message of your power, your grace, that enables us to overcome, to go forth conquering and to conquer. We look forward to the work that you promised to do in us. We believe that you're the author and the finisher. And this morning...
we ask that your Holy Spirit will work in our hearts, causing us to be willing as we look to Jesus to be anything or nothing so we may do heart service for our Master. Work this out in our experience, whoever we are, wherever we are, for we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. And let everyone say, Amen. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.